Bretto, for years our Sydney-based wellness couch fans have been saying, when are you coming to Sydney? Oh, they've been banging the door down, MP. Well, Sydney Ciders will be in your neck of the woods on Saturday, June the 2nd. We're going out of the CBD, we're heading straight down the highway to the regions of the Illawarra and the beautiful town of Kiama for our third and final wellness base camp of the year. Join Fuad Kassab from Quirky Cooking to talk all about food, naturopath, gut guru and female health extraordinaire, Helen Patteron. Stress is a hot topic with Dr. Maria Zushman and you and I, Bretto, are talking about succeeding at life and love and work at the same time as succeeding in health because there is no wellness in a life that doesn't feel good. Zazen Alkaline Water presents the Wellness Base Camp, one full day of inspiration and education on Saturday, June 2 from 10 till 5. There's over 1000 bucks in door prizes, a raft of world-class local exhibitors and a room full of people just like you. Bring a buddy and get two tickets for the price of one before they're all gone. All details and tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara and over the next three weeks, it's me interviewing six amazing people. Now, you know that uh, I am the founder of Changing Habits and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy. And every year we do it's an online course, but every year we do two things where our students, as well as the public, doesn't have to be students, and our graduates uh, can come in and spend time together. We do one in February at the Sunshine Coast where we uh, discuss how can we unpack the knowledge that we've learned over the 12 months of the Functional Nutrition Academy courses, including the fundamentals of nutrition, as well as the uh, applied nutrition course. So the second time that we meet is at the last weekend in July and this uh, year, 2018, it's the 28th and 29th of July in Brisbane. And we always have a summit. It's called the Functional Nutrition Academy Summit. And we always have a summit that uh, gives more information, more information than what's on the course. But you have the grounding with the course, but then... We have amazing speakers come. And this is our third year that we have run this. And every year I handpick the speakers um, because there's just so many people that I listen to and read information from and read their articles, their blogs. And I handpick the, the speakers almost 12 months before the summit arrives. So I'm very excited to let you know that we have six amazing speakers this year. We have Dr. Rodney Ford, who is a paediatrician as well as a gastroenterologist from New Zealand, and he was in my movie, What's With Wheat? So you'll be hearing from him today, as well as Dr. Joanne Messenger. She is a chiropractor, but she's also written uh, many books on on hormones, and she's a specialist in hormones, as well as getting out of your way in order to do the things that you need to do. We have Dr. Margie Smith, the author of Gene Genius, as well as the founder of Smart DNA. So she'll be speaking, of course, on genes and DNA. You're going to love her. We have Professor Cliff Hawkins. Now, he's an amazing man. He just wanted to help his family. And he figured out that there are enzymes in plants that would help with digestion. So he's going to talk about the gut, enzymes, and digestion. We also have Melanie Thompson. Now, Melanie is a naturopath, but she works for Cultured Wellness, which um, we've interviewed Kirsty Worth before, who's the founder of Cultured Wellness. But Melanie is the herb specialist, so she'll be speaking on herbs and the amazing things that they do in the body uh, medicinally as well as um, like nutrition-wise because they are a food and our, and last but not least, is our beautiful Karen Smith. 
She will be speaking on, as you know, mindset. Um, she can convince anybody to do anything, I swear. She's amazing, as you know. And, and if you're a regular listener, you'll, you'll know what she's like. So I asked Karen last year in 2017 if she'd like to do the uh, Functional Nutrition Academy, but she, her father got very sick and she, at the last minute, had to um, go to her father in Sydney. So at the last minute, I asked my beautiful Kim Morrison, our beautiful up for a chat Kim Morrison, to speak for us. And I tell you, she was the highlight, absolute highlight last year. And I, I think you could ask the students. Um, she was just amazing. So I decided that I would get Karen this year and we'll get Kim back next year in 2019 because, like, Kim's one of those people that inspire you to just make those changes She's, she's motivational, but more so she inspires in spirit, helps you get your reason for doing it, your why, as does Karen Smith. So over the next three weeks, I will be um, interviewing uh, these amazing speakers. So each week you will have uh, two speakers. So this week I have, I've interviewed Dr. Rodney Ford, uh, our gastroenterologist and pediatrician, as well as Dr. Joanne Messenger, our hormone expert. Enjoy, and I'll talk to you at the end of Up for a Chat. Welcome to the speaker introduction for the Nutrition Summit of 2018. The lineup of speakers is spectacular. Um, they will give you information uh, that will help you along your road to success with nutrition. I've handpicked them all myself, and they give you the latest in science and research in their field. And right now, I have Dr. Rodney Ford, who was one of the stars of my documentary, What's With Wheat, and so I'm very excited that he is actually coming to our summit to speak. So welcome, Rodney. Thank you. Let's talk about why you do what you do, because I know you've been doing this a long time. You've been in practice as a, a medical doctor, a, you do gastroenterology, you do pediatrics, and I know you've been doing it a long time and against the grain, per se. So tell me. That's right. I see children who are sick and children come to see me because they've got symptoms and they want, the parents want their children to feel better again. And it's very distressing for the parents, for their children to be moaning and saying, mummy, I've got a sore tummy or having an itchy rash and feeling uncomfortable scratching all night and not being able to get to sleep. Mm. And then in the morning, maybe feeling sick and vomiting up stuff and not feeling good and being told that they're just anxious children. And my idea has been that these children who have symptoms, there must be something causing them the problem. And what is it? Now, I've been taught, basically, if you've got symptoms, then you've got to make a diagnosis. And once you've made a diagnosis, you've got to treat it. And the usual treatment, of course, in the medical fraternity is medication. And the symptoms get turned into a diagnosis. So you've got an itchy rash that's turned into a diagnosis of eczema. And then if you've got eczema, then you need to treat it with a medication on the outside. And if it doesn't get better, then you change the creams. And if you don't get better, they change your doctor. And, if, and then the doctor will prescribe more creams. And the circle goes on. And what I've found, like you and many others, is that most illnesses are the root causes food. And if you don't eat the right food, you eat the wrong food, if you react to food, then you're going to get the symptoms. And by looking at the mechanism of the illness and by switching the diet, eliminating or adding or st stopping nutritional deficiencies, those sort of things, then the symptoms magically go away and they don't need medication. And the diagnosis isn't that important because the food reactions can occur in any organ of the body. So some people are susceptible to headaches and migraines, other people to itchy skin, other people to sore tummies, to gastric reflux, to constipation, to diarrhea, and some people to joint aches and pains. And then, of course, as people, children grow into adults, they begin to get the autoimmune diseases. So the actual target organ of the food problem, uh, reaction, deficiency, um, intolerance 
varies, but the treatment is basically the same, get people eating properly. So I recognized that a long time ago, but it still seems to be um, a controversial thing to do to make sure that people are eating properly. And now how long have you been in the field? Well, I've graduated in 1972, so that's last century. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? (laughs) And I did paediatrics at Christchurch. And what I found, I was a registrar working and uh, under the supervision of my senior medical officers, consultants, and I saw a lot of children with vomiting and eczema and the parents were saying that they thought that milk was making these children sick. And I was listening to that. And after a while, I said to my senior medical officer, the professor, Professor Shannon at the time, I said, Prof, um, I think this child's got milk allergy. And uh, looked down his nose at me and thought, she said, that's rubbish. You know, people don't get allergic to foods, and that's not the problem. This, this child's got eczema or vomiting or something. And so I said, well, I don't believe you, Prof. This child has got milk allergy. And he said, well, prove it then. If you can prove it to me, then uh, I'll believe you. So the next step was that I got a research grant and I began to research food allergy in children. And I did that for two years and I did what's called double-blind studies, challenging the children with milk and egg was the ones I was looking at. I was looking at uh, children with vomiting and eczema, doing skin prick tests on these children. And I got a whole lot of children, 120 about, and showed by double-blind challenge that basically they all got sick. <laughs> and uh, then uh, Prof in the end said, well, uh, I'll refer these children to you, Rodney. And he used to send me letters saying, Dear Rodney, you might believe that this child's got a food allergy. Would you please see? (laughs) He never in his life ever admitted that food allergy or food intolerance actually existed. Now, that was the 70s. Fast forward now quite a few decades later, and are you seeing more and more children um, getting sicker and sicker. Do you see that or do you think we're just getting better at diagnosis? Well, there's very good evidence to show that uh, the food allergies increased to two and fold, twofold, fourfold, and some people say tenfold, and that the, there's also there's the recognition that children are reacting to foods and also the immediate IgE reactions, which are the classical food allergy, that's been uh, increasing at least fourfold over the last 20 years. But still, there's a great reluctance of medical practitioners to uh, agree to this. I, I, after doing doing <laughs> food allergy, diagnosing children with food allergy, I ran the food allergy clinic and gastroenterology clinic at the Christchurch Hospital as associate professor. And I began looking at wheat allergy, and a lot of the mothers were saying that their children were reacting to wheat but they had negative skin tests and I couldn't show that these children had a wheat allergy. And I accepted what the mothers said. They said, my child's sick with wheat and when I take wheat out of their diet, they get better. Um, but I was, tr- I was trained to look for a condition called celiac disease. That's a condition that most people have heard about now where gluten, uh, one of the, the proteins in wheat, damages the bowel and the bowel doesn't work as well, and you get what's called malabsorption. You get runny poos usually, but sometimes constipation. You don't grow as well, and you have a sore tummy, reflux, a whole lot of symptoms. But that clincher of the diagnosis is what was called, and still is, called a small bowel biopsy, where an endoscope, that's a tube that goes into the mouth while you're asleep, goes down into the stomach and then out of the stomach into the small bowel a little bit of tissue is taken and that's looked at. And if they've got, if that tissue has the hallmarks of celiac disease, which is a damaged bowel, then you can diagnose this condition as celiac disease. And that was a diagnostic criteria made in the 1970s. And it really hasn't changed a lot. It has shifted a bit and there are good blood tests now. But because this was the actual formal diagnosis, it became a mantra that if you didn't have damage in your bowel, then you couldn't be reacting to gluten, which was 
completely wrong grammar because it was the other way around that if you had bowel damage, then you were reacting to gluten, but it didn't, the converse is not true. Anyway, it became a sort of uh, mantra that uh, gluten could only and specifically cause celiac disease. And uh, I've just been reviewing a child, and I will present this child to you uh, in July. Um, her name's Elizabeth, and I've just been looking at her file, and I, she was the very first person that I diagnosed as gluten intolerant, and that was in September 1990, so that's nearly 30 years ago. And uh, she was a girl who had three <laughs> biopsies, and uh, they were all negative. And uh, after two years of umming and ahhing and talking to my colleagues, I said, look, this child should go on a gluten-free diet and see if she got better. And she did. She got better within a couple of weeks. And uh, from then on, I thought, oh, I wonder how many other children in my clinic are suffering from gluten and I have been blind to it. And so more and more, I began to experiment. I don't know whether that's the right word. probably is. Um, with the, With the parents uh, in mind and the children happy to do this to put them on a gluten-free diet that was difficult in those days uh how long ago are we talking about 25 years ago putting people on a gluten-free diet? no one had ever heard of gluten and the shops hadn't heard of gluten there were no gluten-free products there was a few bad products of gluten-free flour so it was a big effort and uh, socially isolating for the children to be on a gluten-free diet but they got better and the parents stuck with the gluten-free diet and uh I began to get into trouble because uh, I was teaching, I was a professor teaching students that uh, you could react to gluten without having celiac disease, which was a sort of um, going through what, I don't know, what the glass ceiling or whatever that is, it was <laughs> forbidden territory. And uh, I got uh, reprimanded, but I still kept on going. And uh, eventually, uh, had seen hundreds, of, maybe thousands of children who were gluten intolerant. I was given a nickname called Dr. Gluten, and people thought that the only thing I did in my clinic was to switch children onto a gluten-free diet, which was not correct. But that was the change that made the biggest difference to those children. And I've got a letter here I found for you, Cindy. I, I look forward it. to it. <laughs> I don't know where I put it. Okay, I have to get it late. But it, it basically, it's from the clinical head of pediatrics who invited me to speak on gluten intolerance. And he said that uh, the senior medical officers, that's him and his colleagues, uh, don't agree with your viewpoint and won't necessarily agree with what you have to say, but we'd be interested to hear your evidence. So I presented a whole lot of children to them. This is in September 2006, so we're talking 12 years ago. Mm. Anyway, I presented the data, an hour of information. I, uh, some of the parents with their children came into the clinic and uh, explained their symptoms, uh, and I showed all this thing. And at the very end of it, they said, well, we don't believe you, basically. And, uh, so, so and then it wasn't uh, until 2012, I think it was 2012, that Alicia Fasano came up with the term non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is basically what you had discovered in 1990. So, uh, you know, you're 22 years ahead of what the science as per se was doing. But sometimes I think we forget to look at the, you know, N equals one, but you were like N equals a thousand um, in research. Uh, um, so do you want to address that? Why why do we want this evidence-based, double-blind, placebo studies when in clinic for 22 years you were seeing amazing results and so were the parents? Well, the problem is testing. Yes. There is no blood test for gluten sensitivity, really. There are a lot of tests that can give you a heads-up and suggesting, hey, this child could have a problem. Many of the tests, and, and the tests that I use for a long time until it was abandoned basically by the labs in Australia and New Zealand, and I think in the UK too, was the what's called native anti-gliadin antibody. This is a antibody produced by the body against gluten. And 
that was the first test used to diagnose celiac disease, but it wasn't found to be particularly accurate. Only 80% of the, no, probably less than that, probably 50% of the people who had a high gliadin antibody had celiac markers. And in, in the end, it was thought not to be very uh, accurate. And the only focus was celiac disease, and it still is really in um, gastroenterology fields. And so this test, because it hasn't been 90%, 100% accurate, has been abandoned because of uh, financial constraints. And this test, which is I found quite useful for giving some evidence of gluten sensitivity, mm. um, has been abandoned because the pathologists, again, don't believe in gluten intolerance. The medics nowadays demand a blood test for a disease. So if a blood test doesn't have, if a disease doesn't have a blood test, then it doesn't exist. I've got a um, note here. The Congress, uh, the uh, RACP con uh, Congress, that's the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, it's being held in May, May the 14th. So that's uh, in another three weeks. Mm. And one of their main topics is, I'll say this slowly, medically unexplained symptoms. Wow. Medically unexplained symptoms is one of the uh, highlighted keynotes. And I don't know what they're going to talk about. Um, and I don't know, just because the medics can't explain the symptoms doesn't mean that uh, you know, they're in someone's head or they're functional. Um, there's, a, there's a huge uh, mo movement called the Rome Criteria Movement. Do you, do you aware of that? There's uh, a group of especially gastroenterologists, but other people and now some neurologists uh, talk about functional gastroenterological symptoms. That means the irritable bowel symptoms, basically diarrhea, constipation, sore tummy, uh, fatigue, without really any organic disease. No, no mm -hmm. tests can be shown that this is the problem. It has been shown that quite a substantial group of these people with unexplained tummy symptoms actually respond to a gluten-free diet and many of them respond to when you remove other things from their diet too, including the, um, it's called the FODMAP diet, you'd be well aware of that and you, and uh, that's when various uh, um, fibres that are can, in, in foods can upset the gut, particularly in relationship to the microbiome, the bacteria in the gut. And there's been... Uh, talk about this is functional because there isn't any diagnostic test, there isn't a drug that you can give, and that it can be attributed to the neurological tree, and that not necessarily imagining these things happening, but it's a very frustrating thing in medicine because if you've got these unexplained symptoms without a test, then you've got to make up a name for it, and the name is usually related to the symptoms. So they call it this uh, functional uh, IBS irritable bowel syndrome and it doesn't really mean anything and what happens is that many many people get diagnosed with this condition irritable bowel syndrome and then they've got a diagnosis and that's the end of it oh well I've got irritable bowel mm. that's my problem and I just have to find out where all the toilets are in the supermarket and I can't go out because of my tummy pain I've got to be careful what I eat and uh, I just have to live with this but so as soon as you give a diagnosis that's the end of the investigation. And also, I'm just rambling on a bit here, but the investigations cost money. Mm. Drugs cost money. And so what's happening in New Zealand, and I'm sure in Australia, is that the GPs are doing not as many tests as they perhaps could do because they are constrained by the finances. And certainly in New Zealand, the GP practices have a budget for that tests and they look after their budget quite carefully and therefore they're reluctant to do tests unless they feel they're absolutely necessary. Uh, now, it depends on your testing for. I see a lot of people who have not been tested for celiac disease and uh, it hasn't even occurred to them because they're waiting for someone to get a lot sicker. And my job as a pediatrician is to keep children well and also if you've got a child who's sick, who's two, three, four, five years old, and you solve their problem nutritionally, and then they live a healthy, happy life from then on, you save them a lifetime of symptoms. And uh, I was thinking today, as, a, as uh, 
this interview is coming up about alcoholics because alcoholics they were drinking beer basically a long time ago just beer and uh, there's some nutrition in beer but not a lot and one of the main problems of that group of gentlemen were that they were having nutritional deficiencies of thiamine and thiamine deficiency led to neurological problems and uh, they needed treatment and so the idea and it's still with us now in various forms was to actually supplement the bread because they knew that alcoholics ate bread and they put thiamine in bread and so the, the idea of that was to help mitigate the poor diet and from then on we've had bread has been enriched with various other things uh, various vitamins minerals and uh, this has been a creep uh, slowly more nutritional deficiencies have been managed by mm. giving people bread with the deficient minerals included mm. which is crazy because uh, instead of trying to teach people to eat properly and this has led to some people criticizing a gluten-free diet because they're saying well the gluten-free bread is no good because it's not nutrient enriched but the nutrient enriched bread without gluten the normal gluten has only been neutrally enriched because the people's <laughs> diets are terrible. So we've got this sort of roundabout. So uh, where were we? Well, I'm 20 years on, I'm still seeing the same problems, seeing children with uh, multiple food allergy, uh, undiagnosed, untested, children with gluten intolerance, uh, unrecognized, uh, parents who are distressed with their children. And... Uh, being fobbed off isn't the word, but it's when I see a child in my clinic, it takes me three quarters of an hour to do a full consultation, and I still haven't got to the bottom of the problem, really. Whilst if you go to your general practitioner, you're going to be there for 10 minutes, and that's not long enough even take a nutritional history, let alone examine the person, do the heights and weights, and get some idea of what, uh, me what uh, mechanics are going on in that child. So... I can understand that the general practitioner is time poor and uh, it, they, they just can't get to the bottom of the problem. But they're, un, they're unwilling to refer. A lot of general practitioners are unwilling to refer. About a third, I did a study a long time ago looking at this, and that some general practitioners refer a lot, some hardly at all. And uh, the, most of the patients that I see are self-referral because they're, they're just won't get referred to me and that's you know that's what's happening um yeah so look i know that you have an unbelievable wealth of knowledge we could talk for hours but um what i wanted to do is i just wanted to give um the people who are coming to the summit a hint or as to um your breadth of knowledge what you will be talking about which um and then a lot of sick children out there so uh, we will look forward to you um, making your way to Australia and um, speaking to us at, at the summit. I'm looking forward to it. And I've got some surprises and I've I'm got sure. some eye-opening ideas and some different concepts that might make understanding food allergy and food intolerance a lot easier. Uh, the last little throwaway thing is that still I am amazed in the year 2018 is that everybody, other than probably you and me and the conference people, don't know the difference between cow's milk allergy and lactose intolerance. It's the same. Lactose intolerance is used as a broad brush thing for anything to do with milk. Mm -hmm. And it just shows the lack of information or lack of knowledge that uh, the difference between lactose and protein and the symptoms, uh, if, you, if you can't, Get, that's base one. If you can't get to base one, you're going to have a problem with all other food-related things because you've got to know what's in your food. Well, we look forward to it. Um, and so it's only a couple of months away, so we're looking forward to it, Rodney. And uh, safe travels to get to us. Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to it. Bye. Welcome to the speaker introduction for the Nutrition Summit of 2018. There's a wonderful lineup of speakers to give you more information um, on top of what you're already learning. They're handpicked by me and they're giving you the latest in science and research in their particular field.
And today I have Dr. Joanne Messenger with me. Uh, Joanne and I have known each other for a long time. We, we won't tell on the decades that we've known each other, but we've known each other a long time. And um, I want to welcome you, Joanne. Thank you, Cindy. <laughs> now, my first question, it's a question I'm asking all, this, all the um, teachers because I think when we get to a place where we've written books and if people are watching the video, they'll see that um, Joanne has, has written some books. If we've written books, um, then we've got a tale to tell and there's a reason why we do what we do. So why are you doing what you're doing now, which I know is different to what you were doing, um, you know, years ago when we first met? Um, I, I guess it's been a natural progression. It, it's no secret the world has changed. Mm. We're bombarded now with digital media, having to look fantastic. We know everything that everybody's doing day to day, uh, from our friends to the Kardashians to um, war zones across the world. It, it's like we're just continuously bombarded with so much information. And I'm all about being really practical. Which information should we listen to? What's relevant to us in our day-to-day -day environment? How can we make our lives better, our families' lives better, the people that we work with better? How can we improve our health, our wealth, our relationships so that we can um, help each other in community and grow from there rather than get bogged down in the he said, she said, oh, my God, did you see what they did yesterday? It's like I'm, I'm really practical and I really want the people to be able to be the best version of themselves without turning their life upside down, without having to spend a whole bunch of money they don't have, without having to be fearful of speaking their truth and being criticised or judged or, or whatever for, for being who they are. Mm. I love that. And you're right, we are bombarded. And I think um, what the Functional Nutrition Academy does is it gives them a philosophy, the philosophy of vitalism, which is, you know, very well, um, and an historical perspective. And by giving them that, then they can pick and choose what they look for in the nutrition world, because we are bombarded all the time with um, fake news about nutrition. And so like, nutrition like the dietary guidelines they're not even real like they're not even science-based and you're seeing it more and more and you're wondering why the dietetics association of australia is not changing um their mantra of you know margarine breakfast cereals grains they're not changing it with the times so i love that number one you know the changing of the times is happening and number two the bombardment so let's go back to where you started, um, you know, your health career. Can we, can we talk about that? Yes. Um, it starts even before my health career. Um, I'm the youngest of seven children, um, all of us girls except for six boys. And um, <laughs> so if that was a bit hard to work out, I've got six older brothers. And uh, my mother was a nurse. And one day uh, the, the mantra in our house was don't run in the house go outside and play. You know, there's not enough space in the house for nine people outside. And one day one of my brothers was charging through the house um, with another brother hot on his heels and he ran smack into a door and hit his head. And from that point on, his health deteriorated. He got sicker and sicker and sicker and my mum, being a nurse, took him to the doctor and to another doctor and another doctor and Royal Perth Hospital, etc., etc. And it just ended up where um, he was finally diagnosed as having scleroderma, um, crest. And he was filled, he was, pardon me? He had crest. He had crest. And he was filled full of cortisone and was basically a, um, a teaching person for the students at the, for the medical students at the hospital. You know, they would come to see, you know, what this looked like. And um, this is back in the early 60s. So this is way before so much information that we've got now. And one of my mum's friends, one of my parents' friends, suggested that they take Chris to a chiropractor. And um, chiropractic back in the 60s was almost unheard of. There was no chiropractor in our town. It was two hours to the nearest chiropractor. But when you're told that your child is going to die... 
then you start to look at things that you might not otherwise look at before. You, you take the risk of stepping outside the medical model to do whatever you possibly can to help your child. So my parents, lo and behold, took Chris to a chiropractor and he didn't die. He got well. He became the champion swimmer of his school, um, the captain of his sports team, and went on for years and years and years. Thanks very much. So it was no surprise that myself and one of my brothers ended up at chiropractic college. And I had, um, I, w- I was blessed with my chiropractic teachers. There was a large input of um, Americans who are, there's no tall poppy syndrome amongst Americans. It's just do the best you can in any way you possibly can. And it was a really grounded in, um, uh, information platform for natural health care that the body can heal itself if it's just given the right conditions, if it's given the right food, the right air, the right thoughts, the right emotions, the, the right water. And so I blossomed into chiropractic practice thinking this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. However, a little backstory in there is when I was 12, um, I was a gymnast. So I was in the backyard one day on the trampoline doing back salt after back salt after back salt, just going round and round in circles. And in the middle of the air, I spontaneously decided I'd do two back salts rather than just one after the other, I'd do two. Having no experience of this, no awareness of this and landed on the frame of the trampoline and fractured my pelvis. And so here again, this is back, this was in the 70s. So um, you still didn't go to doctors and things like you do now. It just wasn't available. It was just toughen up, girl, on you go. But within a year, my period stopped. Um, I gained weight. I went from just being a normal, functioning country girl to and had my appendix removed. It was like my whole health just plummeted instantly. And um, let's go forward again now to when I'm at chiropractic college, I was um, visiting a house that was owned by a chiropractor. And he would come down on the weekends and adjust all the students for free. Thank you, thank you, Bill. And um, he, Bill McPherson. Bill McPherson, Bill, ah. And so Bill McPherson adjusted me and my period came back. So I had virtually not had a period for five years. Incredibly unhealthy situation. Um, I was grumpy all the time. And and fortunately, um, I was blessed to have a good brain. I was blessed to be academically intelligent. So I could override most things just by the will of thoughts. But when Bill adjusted me and, like, realigned the base of my spine and my pelvis, my period came back. All of a sudden, I started to feel better when I'd forgotten that I wasn't feeling good anymore, you know, feeling grumpy. It was, it was the norm for the last five years. I'd forgotten what it was like to feel good. And so from there I, I sailed through chiropractic college. I loved it. I loved the science. I loved the philosophy. I loved the people and went into practising Warrnambool in Victoria and um, for all intents and purposes had a normal practice. <coughs> Excuse me. Loved the patients, went to work day to day. And then one day a lady came in who was an old-school clairvoyant. She could see auras. And so she would say unusual things to me when I was working. You know, this line of energy is like lining up and this is happening and this is happening. I had no awareness whatsoever as to what she was talking about. And um, it didn't take long to work out that she knew what she was talking about, even if I didn't. So as our group of chiropractors, we'd get together with her every Friday night and we'd learn a bit more about energy healing. And so I guess like acupuncture, the meridians through the body, this was all of the energy work around the body. And it was amazing. And I was, I would do it discreetly. I would go and work on my patients, my chiropractic patients, while they were face down so they couldn't see what I was doing. So I didn't, you know, I, I could just look professional still. And they would come back the next visit and go, I haven't had a migraine since blah, blah, blah. 
what did you do that was different? And it was like, oh, my God, okay, I have to come clean now. (laughs) And so I just started working more energetically as well as chiropractically with people. And it it just sort of grew from there. But I became... um, you know how when when you're doing something that you're passionate about, you're on the edge. There's people that love what you do and there's people that don't want you to change. There's people that want you to be the same old you that you've always been. And the, the, the problem for, that I found was that once I was out of that box, once I knew that, hey, there's more, then I couldn't fit back in the box anymore. It, it's kind of like once you know margarine is hideous, <laughs> You just can't get back in the margarine box anymore. You have to go to the butter and the olive oil and the, and the coconut oil. You just don't, you don't fit that mould. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not right that you should. You know, you've got to be true to yourself. And so years went by where I guess I was um, having to be a pioneer in my own world. And some of the, one of the drawbacks of this is when you haven't got any mentors, when there's no one doing what you're doing, then you can't really role model any, anybody. You have to find out your own way by trial and error. And, and there's blessings in this because when you don't have to follow anybody else's tracks, you can totally reinvent yourself any which way you can. So I have a freedom now that I didn't used to have. I used to have to fit within, uh, you know, as a child, the, the medical rules as mum as a nurse, then the chiropractic rules as a chiropractor, then the energy healing rules as to the energy healing people. And now it's like put it all together. You know, it, it's like none of us have got to where we are today without learning something. And we don't have to throw out everything that we learnt unless it was silly and not useful, <laughs> throw that stuff out. It's just put everything together that you already know in a way that suits you and your lifestyle now. So now I write books, I make video blogs, you can find them on my website. Um, I've gone from being a person who, as, as the seventh child, you don't get hurt. And certainly, and certainly in the 60s, no one gets hurt. Everyone just wants peace and quiet. <laughs> and in the 60s, a girl doesn't get hurt. So I've gone from not speaking up to possibly speaking up too much to, okay, where do I speak up, where do I be quiet? And, and the great thing now with technology is you can make videos, you can do Facebook Lives, you can do interviews like this, as much as you like, and people can just simply watch it or not. So it's like people can censor for themselves what they take into their brain. They just need to, you know, have that scroll by option and take it rather than allow things into their minds that aren't appropriate for them and to tune in to the interviews, to tune into the videos, the podcasts or whatever that are right for them, that are in alignment with who they are now and where they're going to go. Mm, I love what you're saying. So you're practising as a chiropractor now or energy work? What, what are you, what, I know you're writing books, but what else are you doing? Um, I've actually retired from seeing patients for one year now, so March the 6th last year. So um, after 35 years of seeing patients day after day after day, um, I decided to dedicate Um, where I am now to sharing my information rather than doing one-to-one all the time and not that there's anything wrong with one-to-one. It's absolutely essential. We need the one-to-one work. But there's other people coming up now, younger people, who can do the one-to-one, whereas I can now do the one-to-few or the one-to-many, the write the books, do the videos. And my next step will be getting back into doing live events because back in the late 90s, I used to do live events all the time. And then with children and stepchildren and practice and books, it's like you can't keep adding things in without dropping something off. Um, sometimes it's your sanity. So it's like I just made that decision to stop seeing patients and start getting back into to the live events. Because even here, this is great. You know, it's like we're just seeing each other, just like 
like we're in the same room. And yet there's still something magical that happens in a live event when you are in the same room. Like like with your summit that's coming up, you know, it, it's like for people to come along and be in a shared space like that with like-minded people, there's something magical happens that's beyond education. It's beyond learning about the microbiome and Aboriginal agriculture and it's like, oh, that's wonderful. And you get more on top of that that sometimes you don't even know that you're getting. Yeah, no, I agree with you entirely. I know um, that last year at the summit um, many of the students gathered together and, um, you know, talked about what they were doing and how they were doing it. You know, we, we have a space for that. We do that in February at graduation. But the summit, I don't know what it does, but it's more information and then there's a whole lot of ahas. I know um, recently I went to Joe Dispenza and um, he sends you um, seven hours of video that you have to watch before you go to his live event. And, yeah, I, I listened to the seven hours. I really enjoyed it. But the feeling that I got in that three-day live event with Joe Spenza, I cannot express. It was, I did not get it on video. I did not get it listening to him. Even though I listened to probably that seven hours twice, yeah. I, I got there and the 500 people in that room and I can't tell you even now how it felt. Yeah. But I just know that when I go to a live event, it's like Anthony Robbins, it's like, you know, when, when we go to a chiropractic event and all of the speakers that are up there and then you get to play and converse. Yeah, you're right. There is something magical about a live event. And so we do want many of our students to come because not only will they meet more students, they're going to learn more information, but it's very inspirational seeing, you know, what everybody is doing as well as the speakers. So yeah. Dr. Messenger, what will you be speaking about? Um, give us a little hint of what you'll be speaking about. Um, my topic is hormones because that's my that's my backstory. You know, how to balance your hormones. That's where I've come from. From the practical um, and academic information of what the hormones, what the main hormones are. We're not going to go into so much nitty gritty that you go, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> we've got enough biochemistry now. Thanks. We're going to have enough intellectual academic knowledge that your brain's happy, that your mind's happy. And we're going to introduce that in a way that, okay, what's this got to do with you? How can you use this in your day-to-day -day life to improve your own health, your own well-being? And if you're in a nutrition practice or a natural therapies practice or a medical practice, any sort of practice, how can you use this information to help your clients, your students, your customers? Mm. Because it's knowledge is one thing. If we don't use it, well, well what's the point? Mm. Agree, yeah. And that's the thing is that knowledge is very powerful, but if you don't use it, it's useless. Correct, yeah. You've, you've got to put it into action and that's what we hope. Um, that yeah. if, if you know that um, red icy poles aren't good for your four-year-old child or yourself and then you're having them at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, well, you know, it's, it's kind of wasted knowledge. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, and the consequences, you know, for everybody. It's just it's just not worth it. My credo is do what works, mm. you know. It's like it doesn't work to not use your knowledge. It doesn't work to have red icy poles at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday. <laughs> no, it does work to eat organic apples. <laughs> it does work to meditate. It does work to connect with like-minded people. Well, Joanna, I am so looking forward to hearing you speak. I haven't heard you speak in a, in a long time, but I have read your books and I absolutely love your message. So I know the students will um, love what you've got to say and get a lot out of your information. The summit is um, at the end of July uh, and it's the weekend of the 28th and 29th in Brisbane. So if you want to come along, you don't have to be a student, by the way. Um, we would love other people to come along. Um, but if you're a graduate or a student, to me this is important and it's a good time for you to come together with your um, fellow students and graduates and, and, and have a weekend of breakfasts and lunches and morning teas and dinners and afternoon teas as well as information to feed your brain. Thank you, Joanne. I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks, Simi. 
Weren't they just amazing? Uh, When I was interviewing them, I could have interviewed them for much longer, but I just felt that if I could give you a Snapchat or a snapshot, I should say, we could say it a Snapchat, but a snapshot of uh, what these two will be speaking about. And what I love is I love why why they do what they do, what made them change. I remember listening to Dr. Rodney Ford when uh, he was on a summit and I remember listening to him and thinking, this man is wise. Uh, And I have to tell you, and you know, that Joanne Messenger, um, I've known for many, many years, as as you heard in the interview, but I've just watched her growth as, as I've watched many of my students and graduates grow. So we look forward to seeing you at the Functional Nutrition Academy um, Summit, which is in Brisbane, July 28th and 29th. Uh, the times are between 9 and 5 and it will be at the Queensland University of Technology. And if you'd like uh, to book for this, just go to F for Functional, N for Nutrition, so FN.academy, click on Events uh, and book in. We're looking forward to seeing not only our students and graduates there, but we're also looking forward to seeing other people who are interested in learning more about their health, their children's health, their family's health, as well as their communities and helping each of those people as well. Bye for now. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. The only lesson is ever going to be your learning. That's it. As long as you're learning, that's your lesson. When you stand in front of the mirror, the talk, the things that go on between these ears in the morning can also be what sets you up for a day. And if you've beaten yourself up for not being the most extraordinary person that you can be, then start now. We make it hard for ourselves. We make things difficult for ourselves because we go and apply a whole bunch of stories and a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of I'm not good enough to the things that occur in our lives. Wake the heck up. Today is a new day. And here's where it can change. Kim Morrison and Karen Smith feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.